Okay, so I, I'm okay. So I'm ready. I was already ready, but you were the one that was kind of like, okay, are we ready? We're gonna count. We're gonna talk first. And my point to you is that like we can cut this part out or not, or we can just leave it on, and then we can say, hey guys, this is Splunk Talk. I'm Hal Rotenberg. That's Birch. Um, we're back, but we look different. Uh, I'm I'm not Michael Wild. Um, that's not Hal Rotenberg on the on the other side of the screen. So uh, this is something new and different, um, but it's still Splunk Talk. So uh, I figured, uh, Birch, if you're okay with this plan, that uh, maybe we would introduce each other a little bit and interview each other a little bit and just see where their discussion went. Is that cool? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm giggling uh, at the... Uh... I want to. I want to start. I want to. The only thing I want is to actually start with a little energy. Wait, you muted yourself. No, I didn't. Oh, there you are. I was oh. over talking. Yeah. Welcome to <laughs> Splunk So, uh, how you feeling, Birch? I mean, it's Friday. We've been talking about this for a while. We've been talking about this for so many Fridays, but this, this is happening now. This is the, this is dipping the toe in the water because we're not live streaming because that's like next level. We'll get there. These are the baby steps. Yeah. Uh, I have to earn my way to live stream. Yes. Yes. You, um, it's like a, like a driver's license. You know, you got to get the, the sticker on your thing and, you know, after so many hours you can, they'll let you live stream. You're my, uh, you're my authorized uh, companion. Yeah, so you you've got training wheels on, and I will shepherd you through the process, and it's all good. No, I'm good. I am excited and happy because um, I used to podcast a lot, like I was doing a weekly show for a while, and uh, that it kind of fell off uh, just due to just my career was going in different directions. So you know my my PowerShell podcast just wasn't front and center anymore, uh, and then I started doing Splunk Talk uh, with Michael Wild back when he was around. What year? Uh, I don't know, uh, 20 something, 2017, maybe I'll, I'll accept it. Yeah, 2016, 2017, something, but, but Splunk Talk as a project had begun long before because Michael Wild being the, uh, the, the mega boss man that he was, uh, you know, he, he had been a Splunk a long time and he built up something called Splunk Talk and had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, some of our predecessors, uh, um, you know, um, and my, my shoot, my, my, Brain's filling me now as far as the, the other participants in that adventure before us. But the last iteration was myself, Michael Wild, and then Clint Sharp started joining us because he was pretty awesome. We, we, we had a lot of fun as a trio. Um, but, you know, we just – it was hard to get three of us together in the same room. And then, uh, and then they, they like little birds. You know, they just flew off and did their own thing. Um, and that left me holding the bag, for which I felt very guilty. And then a customer of mine and a friend who here in town in, in Atlanta, uh, Jason Spears. Hey, Jason. Um, several people. Hey, Jason. Several people had said, "Hey, where, when's Splunk Talk coming back?" So this is not a new conversation. People ask for new episodes, which is always awesome to hear that. Um, I like the idea that they they always prefaced it with, "When is it coming back?" Not if yeah. or is. Yeah, and and podcasts are often the, this way in the sense that they don't end there's no beginning and end but there's a term in the industry if you will it's it's pod fade they do fade away sometimes so i attribute it to picasso but there's this quote i love that's like art is never finished it's only abandoned yeah apropos i can i can identify with that that makes sense um but i would like to but abandoned it is not no, yeah, exactly. We're 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 coming back here. We wanted to start out with, um, you know, I mean, some some podcasts have have gone into like seasons. You know, like the the label thing. So, you know, maybe this is like season three or whatever. Uh, episode one, season three. It doesn't matter. But anyway, I'm here. Um, you're there. We need to. People need to learn more about what you're about. Um, I well, and it's been a few years, so I'm sure there's people that want to learn more about you too. So maybe we should just go back and forth. Who goes first? We didn't talk about this ahead of time. Um, I'll be the chicken. You be the egg. The obvious one Alexa. goes first. Do you have Alexa or Google Assistant nearby? Uh, hold on. I know what I could do. Okay, hold on. This will, this will just take a moment. 
Okay, Google. Flip a coin. Guess you could ask Siri as well. Uh, head or tails? Oh, I was really hoping you'd forget to ask. Um, I'll, I'll go tails. Okay. It landed on heads. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, okay. So you go first. I guess I go first. Does that mean that I'm interviewing or interviewer? Or it means I get heads or tails. It, it, it means I get to pick, I guess. Okay. Why don't I interview for you first? Okay. Unless you want to flip a coin about that. No, no I think that's <laughs> enough that we should probably just, you know, move forward with a plan there. Um, so, um, Birch, is that your real name? Birch Simon? You, you know, you have uh, to deal with this a lot. <laughs> I just go by Birch. I have a last name that is too commonly a first name. And because of the confusion that often happens, I save people the embarrassment of calling me the wrong thing by just chopping off that last name uh, whenever I can. Yeah. So I go by Birch. But, but, but birth certificate wise, Birch is on it in the first position? No. Oh, okay. No, but that will be a secret we have really? to earn our way into over the seasons. Okay, okay. Then maybe, you know, a few. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. You got to get you got to get a few podcasts in me so I loosen up. <laughs> All right. So, uh Birch Simon, um Simon Birch, Birch Simon, just Birch. Um oh, and actually in the co company directory, your last name is not in there, which is which is goes to what you're we were trying to accomplish there. Interesting factoid, it used to be the Splunk logo for my last name. Yeah. And uh, I had that for like maybe over a year. And then finally someone from HR came to me and they basically said, so um, it turns out the use of a special character breaks our systems. <laughs> and rather than make the investment to get a developer to like yeah. go and allow for characters that shouldn't be in a last name anyway, yeah. like a, a greater than sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, could you just change it to some alpha characters? And uh, and so yeah. I did. Uh, but as a, as a Splunker Nina had came up with the idea of why not use TM like trademark? So uh, my last name has been showing up as Splunk uh, as Birch TM. Nice. Nice. I, I was wondering about that because I still had Birch greater than in my address book, and I just went to oh. and click the update button, and now I see the TM. So it, that's kind of awesome that the conversation was not, um, you know, an automated notification from the HR system that your name has been changed to whatever your name <laughs> is. That's awesome that instead it was a conversation from HR, you know, that was actually you know kind of flexible about it. So that's cool. Yeah, they actually uh, paraphrased, but they went so far as they were like, we we really admire that you're being splunky and, and living a corporate value of, of having fun, uh, but have fun with a name that doesn't require <laughs> us to <laughs> go and change the code. <laughs> yeah, my name is, uh, you know, uh, semicolon drop tables, you know. Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of... Uh, uh, like my expense report was showing up as uh, Birch uh, ampersand GT uh, semicolon. Okay. Yep. Yep. I can see that. All right. So let's um, let's get into a little more about you. So you, sure. How long? Um, I've been uh, with Splunk since I think 2014. End of 2014. Okay. Uh, I was a customer before that, though. Okay. So how long had you been using Splunk before? joined us basically uh my first the first time i had splunk come to my office was like the week after the ipo in 2012 yeah so that would have been uh february or march of two, uh, 2012 well, that's when i started i yeah. started in february of 2012 in the right before the ipo ah okay yeah so um i you... actually go ahead no, my uh, the first the we had actually looked at Splunk like a year or two before that, um, but it was a very different product pre four three, and so it, it it wasn't appropriate for our needs. But when I looked at it, it wasn't actually for logging. Mm -hmm. I looked at Splunk um, 
as an audit tool to be able to look at our WebSphere configuration, which was all in XML, mm-hmm. and be able to use it to get essentially a read-only look at a very large infrastructure um, and use the name value pairs inherent in mm-hmm. that markup language to understand uh, where we had deviations and, and so forth. Because, you know, in a lot of uh, troubleshooting, uh, you do a lot of, well, why does it work here and not here? What's different? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so configuration that was the initial. Just understanding if anything changed, you do like an occasional load of the XML files. I was using a file monitor, okay. and every time the file changed, uh, we were playing with the CRC salt setting on that it. Thing. Otherwise, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, and which was ingest. fine because it wasn't that much data anyway. Okay, but you ingested it as one document, the one event, doc, one document is one event, or did you break it up? Um. I don't, I don't even remember. Listening has ever messed with ingesting XML files because the structure is is irregular. You know, it's hard to figure out how to make mul- multiple events out of an XML file because the schema could be different from file to file. Right. The pattern is, by definition, inconsistent, even so far as the use of attributes versus mm-hmm. child mm-hmm. objects. And so, yeah, I... And sometimes they can get I remember really struggling with that. Yeah. And and sometimes they can get really large. And if you've got like a megabyte XML as ingested as one event, that's hard for Splunk to parse. And it's also hard for the browser because we push a lot of that stuff to the browser. It's hard for the browser to you're gonna be allocating RAM to do the field extraction, you know, some or some of the field decoration, I guess is a better way to put that, because it's already been extracted. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I remember something. I, I forget exactly how I did the the breaking because, well, actually, hit the pause. We're making an implication or an, or an assumption here that we haven't uncovered, which is that uh, XML with a time series could be an easy to parse format because you could say, oh, here's a timestamp, here's a payload, here's an event, whatever. Oh, here's another one, and it's essentially a log, but it's just written in XML, which is fine. Sometimes it is. But yeah, not. And this was one of those times it was not. Mm-hmm. And so those definitely were uh, big files. Um, I vaguely recall there might have been something where the way we used the CRC salt, it was only re-indexing the portion that was changed. Okay. I and I don't it. remember how we did that. But let's, and I don't want to go too much further in that. I wanted people to hear that you could go there. And so that they know, yeah. you know a little bit about your brain. So what were you doing before Splunk? Not, not like your entire career necessarily, but what are some interesting things about you before you joined Splunk? So my first job out of college was a rotational program. And the reason that is interesting is because it's uncommon to find um, an opportunity like that where I got to be a database administrator, a quality assurance analyst, a business systems analyst, a programmer, and an infrastructure engineer uh, within a year and a half. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so once I started my career, sorry? That was part of the gig? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And so coming out of that, uh, it was incredible not only knowing the people in all those different groups, but being able to understand and appreciate their perspective. And so I'd work with my peers, and when we came up with processes or we'd work with different teams and things uh, were frustrating, you maybe didn't understand why someone was coming from a certain spot, mm-hmm. I-, I could. Um, and that segued really nicely as I, I moved into getting more involved with Splunk, and I became a full-time Splunk administrator after being uh, – after that rotation, I, I was an infrastructure engineer for like seven years. Mm-hmm. Started uh, playing with Splunk, became a Splunk admin at another company. And uh, regardless of the fact that I was working with people of different technical backgrounds at the new company, I was able to carry that learning. Mm-hmm. and understand when they came to me with a new use case, I could help them translate. Oh, okay, you're doing this. This is your lifestyle. I've been there. Yeah. So what, what you're saying, though, is um, one of those things that probably, I, I don't know how many people realize how important that is because it's, you can learn the technology 
I mean, as long as you're, you know, you, you're comfortable with change and you, you pick up new concepts and, and, you know, but, but the, it's the soft skills and the talking with the people and working with the business stakeholders and all that stuff. Um, that's, that's probably harder to learn. You have to do it. And it's not comfortable for some people that are in our line of work. So you got to make yourself do it or you got to put yourself in that position. Um, I don't know about you, but like, I consider myself to be, um, a, a bit of a, um, Oh, shit. I'm, I'm, I'm missing the word. I'm, I'm having one of those moments where, like, I know exactly what the word is that I want, want but the one where you're the opposite of out- unicorn. No, no, no. Not I'm not outgoing. What, what is that? You know, introvert, extrovert, introvert. I consider myself an introvert. Um, not when I'm speaking, you know, on on camera, like in a setting like this, and and I'm I'm okay with. Uh, I should be quite comfortable with public speaking. Um, but like otherwise, yeah, I. I would rather not be highly social with a lot of people all the time and have, so it's this weird blend. And so for somebody that's, you know, has a nature as an introvert, you got to put yourself out there and not be that introverted engineer because that's, you'll limit, limit yourself. And, and actually you could, that's like the human factor side. There's even almost a selfish side because if you're someone who's just so infatuated with what you do for work and the technology, why would you choose to do something else? Why would you choose to go talk to people and have to translate their mm-hmm. use cases and help them understand these things? That's not the fun part. The fun part is the the, the getting into the gear. Mm-hmm. So you, you see both sides of it. I have definitely been in both places where, to me, the fun thing was reading the specs of a particular protocol, you know, and I'm like, you know, looking at SNMP, you know, at the, uh, you know, the, the what, at what bit is the, are they store, storing the object ID, you know, and da, 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 da. Yeah, that was the fun thing to me to do, you know, at that time. Yeah. Uh, I've been in that also, but now I'm in a customer facing role and I'm having a lot of fun there too. So. Um, so yeah. let's, let's move forward now. So, I mean, you, you, you did, you, you bet definitely sat in the seat as far as, you know, operations and make, you know, fixing the broken things and building new things. Um, did you have any particular uh, outside of Splunk specialties or things that you gravitated towards? Oh, you know it. Uh, so I actually got, uh, I've always loved comedy. And so when I was in college, I got really into improvisational comedy. And it was this, uh, I had tried scripted stuff and um, it was too much work. Uh, it's like a lot of work and rehearsal. Like high school and, and another thing? Yeah. Did you, were you in drama class or anything like that? Or okay. Yeah. In, in fact, I was the vice president of our, our uh, theater club in high school. Uh, and I always uh, giggle because I rarely performed in the place. Because I was like, yeah, scripted stuff's not for me, but I, I, I love doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was improv that really hooked me. Um, the ability to not have to prepare yeah. and just go and do and be oh. and live in your mistakes. To- yeah, yeah. I'm, that's why I podcast, man. <laughs> you think we have a script here? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I did that. Uh, I then, uh, after college, uh, I was actually doing that professionally. So I was performing with theaters in the Boston area and uh, did that for over a decade. And um, it was really incredible being able to use what I learned there and carry it in with my love of Splunk uh, to be able to do things like present at conf and um, talk with customers and and be able to think on my feet when I'm talking with customers and so forth. So uh, that that was uh, a lot of fun. And that was Part of how I was so drawn to uh, when when you had told me Splunk Talk was starting up again. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's definitely elements of creativity to this type of engagement, and and I, I think it's um it's kind of a, a free thing, right? It's it's not something constrained by you know a format. You don't have to deliver the script, um, and that's uh, and and people in marketing, I mean, bless them they have a hard job and, and they have to, to scale and they have to build this structure. Um, and it's, and it's rigid and it's like, we're going to do, you know, create this collateral and it's going to make this format and that stuff's super important, but man, my brain does not work that way. <laughs> so that's not the type of contribution that I can, I can do. I, I, that would be like scripted, you know, drama would be for you. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, what what I I do, uh, what 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 oh, works yeah. for me and what works for you, should we? Yeah. Sorry. I, I could ask you what you do now, and if that's what you were trying to. Oh. Horrible. Setup. I was actually going to flip the script. So why don't I say what I do now, and then and then we'll flip it so we can learn about about you as well. That works. Um, I. Yeah, so I, I was a, a sales engineer at West Long for about two years, uh, being able to work with customers. And one thing that I was really drawn to was best practices and being able to tell customers and help customers learn from customers what works uh, in, in reality and practicality. And this opportunity came up of this best practices team that was being created. And I... Uh, Got connected with uh, Devani, who was setting it up, and was able to become a best practices engineer. And um, actually, as of August, I, I now am the, the manager of our product best practices team. So we get to focus on creating content that helps accelerate or maximize our customers' investments. So why, does that mean you therefore have to be a specialist in all of those best practices? Uh, professionally, no, but personally, I want to. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, what do you do? What's that process like with, I mean, let's say that new version of Splunk comes out, okay, and there's a new feature that um, it's possible that it hasn't been used a whole lot yet. And, I mean, how do you build those best practices at that stage? I mean, pick, yeah. pick a feature, I mean, but, you know, there's a smart store, I guess would be a, a recent one. Yeah, so it, it's a, a challenge, and so having a team like this that's dedicated to it allows us to create systemic solutions, like being able to capture some of the best practices from the product creators who may have been so involved and, and intimately informed of what works and what doesn't with the usage of it. Uh, how can we get that from them? So right off the bat at a release, we can have that material available for everyone. Uh, beyond that, it's an ongoing thing. How can we play with it or learn from our professional services or our sales engineers or people that are playing with it? What support. do they know that they can share? Sorry? I said it or probably support as well. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's always learning. Is there a specific example you can think of that stands out as far as a best practice that was just really helpful or surprising or unique? Um, I can think of a fun one that has caused me a lot of problems. Already? Uh, which is that Will I once gave a – sorry? Will you share it with us? I would love to. Uh, so um, at a conf talk, I – Misexplained a practice okay. of uh, what I intended to say was that if someone was intending to become a cluster, an indexer clustered environment, mm -hmm. they could, until they have the other nodes set up, the other peers set up, they could run as a cluster with a replication factor of one and a search factor of one. And it's essentially a non, it's a you have cluster configuration, yeah. but you haven't started any replication, right. and so you don't have any additional retention requirements and so forth. But it allows the bucket structure to start having the right naming, so that when you do turn on clustering, you get that much more retroactive replication. Okay, can you do that? Unfortunately, unfortunately, what I the way I explained it was more simplistic. And uh, and so I accidentally led people into thinking that regardless of their intentions, they should be running a cluster of one. And that's not true because you introduced significant more complexity in administration mm -hmm. that was causing people to shoot themselves in the foot. So I was getting uh, feedback from people. They said, hey, they heard in this talk that you gave that they should be running a cluster of one. And I was like, oh, golly, I... The word choice I used, I didn't even recognize how much I oversimplified that. Because when I joined Splunk around, uh, I think it was version 4, but version 5 shipped not long after, um, clustering was new. That was new, and not a lot of customers were, were, you know, the uptake of it. It took a little while, and even once people trusted it, it was still like, okay, great, that's going to be more work than I have to do. 
But I think we hit a point, and I don't, I don't know when that happened, but relatively recently, where it was like, okay, you know what? There's actually benefits to um, turning clustering on using a cluster master to manage the configuration state of all of the slaves. And I, I think that's probably where you're kind of coming from. That you know, there, there's there are other benefits if you're not prepared oh, yeah. for the extra, you know, administration. It's a it's a drawback, but. Um, yeah, absolutely. If if you have knowing, yeah, if you have no intention on having that type of high availability, then adding in the complexity of uh, just having one more thing, a cluster master, yeah. and um, learning that new configuration is probably not worth it. Um, but that was lost in what I was communicating. It, it came off uh, more like just do it no matter what, and then people were like, "This is hard to manage because I don't need it. I'm not getting a value from it." But you, you have sp uh, spoke at, at Conf a couple times. How many did you deliver last last year? Uh, last year. Or was it the year before that you did? The year before I did 11. 11. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, uh, we had a tight space in Disney. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't remember how many, but uh, two years ago, I had some some uh, duplicate. I had five talks, and some of them were obviously done more than once. Yeah. Uh, so it, it came out to a 11, 11 shows. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice. Yeah. Um, but no, we're back in Vegas this year, so hopefully the the budget for the you know the number of sessions will be up higher. Because I mean, there's a thousand submissions, no matter what happens, you know, but we can't fit them all in the show. And that was, that's the real shame. I mean, as much as I like to joke that uh, being in a bigger venue affords me more opportunities to have me time in front of everyone talking, uh, but the reality is that uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking um, to see so many great talk ideas submitted and not accepted because we just don't have a lot of space. Yeah, yeah. And in each of those rooms you know is it has a hard cost you know and then there's got a yeah. decision okay which of these is going to be more most useful to the most people and that's a hard decision to make yeah all right that's good so, i think i understand a little more about you thank you for participating can you tell us about you if I specifically uh so we we got your your name uh is hal short for anything it is <laughs> or do we have to get a few more okay. Splunk talks in you? Per se, I don't. No, I don't. I don't hate my first name, but I don't use it. Like nobody uses it. Nobody calls me Harold. That's just not a thing that that anybody ever does. Ah, Harold Marvin Rotenberg Jr. is the father. oh Marvin, yeah. and you're a junior. Yeah, I'm a junior. My grandpa was Marvin Rotenberg. Just that way, uh, the middle name. It was just the Marvin Room. Yeah. Uh, um, so, what's what's your what what's your background? Um, I mean, I, I know that you have the PowerShell podcast as well. Um, I, I'm really curious how you got how you got so much PowerShell skills in your pre Splunk career. Sure, sure. So the yeah, the Power Scripting podcast was kind of the. Uh, beginning of the peak of that part of my career. Um, but that chapter, so before Splunk, I was in operations, IT operations roles for about 15 years. Um, I worked for HP, IBM, and Home Depot. Um, and uh, those, um, you know, I was, we'll see, I think I was at IBM at the time. I know I was at IBM at the time. And this was a neat, this was a neat group. I was in ISS, so Internet Security Systems. Um, they're now a division of IBM, but they had just been acquired. And, um, I joined them working in the uh, in R and D in the lab. So I was on the team that ran the lab, and the lab was where. So they made um, idea. They still make them IDS and IPS products, and uh, intrusion detection and prevention. For those not familiar with those acronyms, and um, whenever the developers or QA needed to test something, they had to test it against a vulnerable and a non-vulnerable state to know if their signature or if their remediation detected or fixed that thing. So yeah. that means that we had to have 
uh, a Cisco switch with this version of iOS on it and that version of iOS on it. We had to have Microsoft Word. iOS or OS2? We, yeah, actually, we had everything. I swear to you, we had everything. We did have OS2 in the lab long beyond after which. We had all this old stuff because our, there, our customers at the time also had some had of old stuff. And the old stuff is where, like, if, you know, a hacker is going to use any possible, uh, you know, endpoint uh, to exploit that, that they can. So, yeah. If it's a vulnerability, it's a door. Exactly. So the old stuff that's at end of life, that's like the hacker's dream, right? Because it's not going to get a patch. So, yeah, we would have, and we had OS2 boxes. We had physical stuff. We had a lot of VMs. Um, and the job was to, uh, run this and manage it and try and automate it as much as possible because literally the act of QA doing a full um, test of everything would break half the lab because that's what they were doing was they would test live virus payloads, for example, you know, wow. and, and there was, you know, all these worms, you know, and, and uh, you know. Back and back then, virus payloads were like the size of a refrigerator, right? Yeah, yeah, physically. <laughs> but no, like, you know, when you, if you're testing something that is a, you know, a denial service or, a, you know, a, a remote command execution type of thing, we're going to cause that thing to fall over or break. So it, what, it, what it meant was that this was a super high maintenance type of lab environment. It was production for them. You know, it was a, it was a lab in, in the sense that it's not, you know, quote unquote production in the IT sense, but it was production because they can't ship unless the lab is up and running. But every time they run a test suite, half the lab falls down. <laughs> so so it's awesome. actually really funny you, you say that uh, it's production for them. Um, Terry Martin, uh, who we both know, I, I, we both ha used to work with, mm -hmm. uh, he once blew my mind because I kept trying to explain that concept of, well, it's production for them. Mm -hmm. And he, he once said uh, off the cuff, he goes, if someone depends on it for their job, then it's production. And I loved it so much because it finally gave me a way to explain the world of Splunk where uh, you are bringing in this machine data, be it production, disaster, disaster recovery, QA, integration, dev, mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Um, all of those environments, you want to be able to compare them with each other. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of customers where they start going down this path of having one Splunk environment for QA, one for production, and all this segregation because that's their instinct. And they don't recognize that truism of, well, it's, it's all production. Right. Having a lab for Splunk is a different concept than having people who depend on this information for their jobs be able to do their jobs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. it was an interesting... Uh, but the, getting back to the whole PowerShell thing yeah. was um, a lot of the lab was Windows environments. You know, Patch Tuesday, for example, you know, every month we had to, you know, recreate the vulnerable, non-vulnerable states of all these different Microsoft uh, software uh, OS and as well as, you know, Office and, and this and that. Um, so those Patch Tuesday being the, the first Tuesday of the, the every month when Microsoft uh, officially releases things. And, and they did that because they... Uh, uh, they didn't want to randomly release vulnerabilities that left people unaware that they should be patching, right? So they had a regular right. cadence. Right. It was a part of Microsoft's, um, you know, they had to, they had an image problem of producing Swiss cheese type of software that was vulnerable, very vulnerable to, so they had, they had to really um, reorganize uh, all of their engineering around this actually, because they had to produce a, they were used to doing uh, releases once every few years, three to five years in some cases. And now they had to release something every month. So the, this was actually a big part of, you know, them turning themselves around and trying to. And then they have they had a lot more of that more recently with we think about cloud and mobile. But um, yeah, so they had to get into a new rhythm. So which was yeah. a thing for them to do. They would notify us and other vendors, security vendors, um, a week, roughly a week ahead of time. So we would know what's coming. Sometimes we would get a KB article. Sometimes we would get the bits, like the actual patch. Sometimes we would just get instructions on um, if this uh, registry, you know, value is set this way, it's vulnerable. If it's set that way, it's not vulnerable. Or you know, if if version you know one two three dot three one of this DLL is he in this path, it's vulnerable. 
if it's a greater version, it's not vulnerable. So sometimes we just had to fake it based on this really minimal information we had. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting. And then a week later, we would get the patches like everybody else does. And they would be different. Sometimes they would change between that week. So from what they said they were going to give you and what they'd be releasing. Because it's, it's just, it happens. And sometimes they would slip. Then they reserve that right. Yeah. So sometimes they would slip. So I would know that a vulnerability is coming. And I would be like, it, it didn't show up. <laughs> where, where is it? So I might be you know, like, hey, um, hey, honey, you know, my wife, I need to be on your computer for a second because I got to disable this service because <laughs> I know that it's <laughs> vulnerable. But a yeah. didn't arrive. And I'm like, you know what? I got to close this front door over here. <laughs> But um, I got into PowerShell because it was in beta at the time, and it was it was it. It was the way to automate things on Windows. You you did have VBScript, you did have Batch, but um, Batch was very limited, and VBScript was just not great. It was just never a great language, um, and it was uh, you know you could do some stuff. It had some extensibility, and you had your VBScript. Uh, uh, you know, this, but it was really uh, I, the, the visual part was just the icing or the lipstick on what was basic, yeah. right? So it, it it had passed its point of effectiveness as a as a language by then. Yeah. So I I got involved in um, this piece of beta software, saw that it was exactly what I needed because of the goals that Microsoft had at the time. Um, I started to heavily get involved in using it to automate my lab. We had a VMware lab. And uh, as far as the virtualization, you know, the hypervisor, and I had a lot of VMs that I had to reprovision. So um, I started trying to figure out how to automate that. Um, and I ended up getting into it. Um, and, and then VMware was, was an early uh, contributor to the PowerShell community. So they produced an integration. They were called a snap-ins at the time. They produced a snap-in. They were one of the very first third parties to do this with Microsoft. Um, they made a snap-in. And it was in beta, and I was looking at it. This is a piece of crap, and this is really so so bad. And you know, like we need to do you know something better. And and I had had this group network of friends I was starting to work with at the time, um, Microsoft MVPs, who were basically anybody in the Microsoft world they know what MVP is, but for those who don't, it's like these are your ambassadors. These are your um, you know loudspeakers, and they're very vocal and they're very involved in the community, and they like to do user groups, Usenet was was still a thing back then at IRC and you know just community it is our equivalent the Splunk Trust. Exactly. Exactly. So um I started hanging out with those guys and then, then I, I got asked, I'm basically it's like, hey, Hal, you you're getting into this. I was gonna write this book, but I can't do it. Why don't you write this book? Which was like, what do you mean write a book? Like I I did not complete college. I flunked out of college twice. I did not ever do a big project in school beyond like, you know, a few pages of an essay kind of thing. And I was like, what do you mean write a book? Um, but I did it. It took me a year and it was like the hardest thing I ever did, but I did it. And it was uh, managing VMware infrastructure with Windows PowerShell TFM. It's the book. Um, and it's um, that kind of changed my career drastically. Because TFM? Like RTFM? I didn't read the fine manual. Okay, so yes. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would show it on camera, but it is currently being used as one of my monitor stands. So it <laughs> my workspace if I were to show you the book right now. But um, that's okay. But I wrote this book, and after you write a book, like a technical you know, manual type of book, um, stuff starts coming your way, like, like speaking gigs. And, um, and, you know, uh, people invite you to user groups and, you know, um, I spoke at, uh, tech ed, Microsoft tech ed before they had their, uh, ignite conference. Um, I, uh, spoke at VMworld. I mean, that was, you know, huge shows. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So I flew around, you know, speaking and, uh, you know, I've written this book and I did some other kind of, uh, training stuff related to that. And, uh, then it was all of a sudden, that was like one of the best things I did for my career. Cause now I could kind of pick a path. Instead of just being in the, the role that I had been in, the operations role, you know, which was, I was enjoying it, but it was, um, it, I, in, in retrospect, it was a little bit limiting. So I, I, I left IBM at some point during this. Um, I, I was awarded Microsoft MVP, which I, I did that for 
seven or ten years or something like that. You know, so it was a, it was a good run working directly with the um, the people that made the product. So I had access mm. to the inventor of PowerShell, the engineers. You know, like and that Microsoft did a great job in that program of of building that 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 trust because they knew that people like me who are like just uber nerds that are super hyper interested and focused on this one little niche would give them great feedback. And when they did good, they would amplify that. And, and when they did bad, well, they would, you know, they would hear about it. Yeah. So that, that was a, a really good part of my background is for was, was being a part of that technical community and kind of building that up, which I, I kind of carried that forward when I joined Splunk and, uh, and helped with the Splunk trust program. Which those are... Oh, but before you jump to Splunk, tell us how you tell us about your first date with Splunk. <laughs> so, I after I left IBM, I went to Home Depot, and they were evaluating. I, I worked on the tools team that was, you know, uh, they would have go they gone on to buy Splunk. It was interesting to them, and we were evaluating it. But I never touched Splunk. I left there, uh, went to another job for a little bit. And then um, a buddy of mine, the same guy who actually gave me the book deal, who, who dodged on the book deal, um, he said, hey, um, I got this cool job. I think you would like it. You, you want to come build some stuff uh, for me at Splunk? I'm building a team. Um, and I had no interviews. I was directly placed into the job with no interviews, which is crazy. And especially now at Splunk, I don't know if you know, like it. You got to have more than you know a few. You have to have like eleven interviews, like it. But yeah, it's it's a long that was process. Kind of, the only reason that worked though was because I worked for um, uh, Will Hayes, who was like employee number eleven or something, and he just was kind of this cowboy that could do whatever he wanted at the time. So it was like, oh sure, well whatever, you know, just build your team. You know, we don't care. Um, so that's. But anyway, so a few years I. Um, Worked in business development organization on a as a solution architect, and I built integrations. Uh, I would work with partners directly, uh, like NetApp. So I built the NetApp app, the first version of the NetApp app. Um, I did a lot of huddling with um, what a Cisco UCS. So the Cisco UCS server platform, I built the UCS app, um, and it was. I would build these little projects to see if, like it was, it was us and the partner seeing if there would be interest in a thing. It's almost like a proof of concept. Sometimes there wasn't. Yeah. It was like a proof of concept. Hey, uh, Splunk apps, you know, like we were building an ecosystem because partners, um, some partners were, would of their own would, would build a Splunk integration because they needed it because their customer kind of demanded it. But a lot of times it wasn't so clear. So we're trying to put that story out there to see if it was interesting to people. Hey, what would happen if we had, you know, the chassis temperature of this UCS chassis, you know, as a metric inside of Splunk. Would that be interesting? So I'll build an and app. And they bought. Build an app. And then I would go to shows and talk about it and stuff like that. So that was cool. I did that for a few years. Um, and then I was a developer evangelist for a year. I worked for... Um, I remember that. You know, at the time, um, Stephen Sorkin. That was a pretty cool gig. Um, I like... I was always a couple of my jobs previous to Splunk were working in R and D labs with developers, and I didn't realize it at the time. But this later was a, dev a DevOps thing. So the concept of DevOps of bridging between IT and, and developers, like that, later to me I realized, oh, hey, this is a movement, and I should be interested in this. And so I started. Yeah, because around that time, the the tide of of DevOps was yeah, it didn't have a name yet. Yeah. So, and, and this was around the time that I, um, let's say, I think the team, the team I was on, the developer evangelism team, it unfortunately just kind of came to an end at the time and, and it was disbanded. And I was looking around and I was like, oh, hey, these guys are doing something kind of cool over here in the IT markets group at Splunk. Um, and I was hired on as a DevOps practitioner. So that was part of my title was to help uh, explain to everybody else, both inside the company and out, what DevOps was about. Why it was important? What is what did it have to do with machine lang uh, machine data? You know, like why should we care about this thing? Um, and that was neat. So I did that for a couple years, and and, and that was um, probably something where like I, I flew around and talked, you know, at, at conferences about DevOps, 
started to build some of these different uh, you know integrations and we didn't do a lot on the product side. Um, it, it was just we weren't we weren't there yet uh, as far as the Splunk product itself. So it was a lot of talking about things you could do rather than like there's not a DevOps product. I mean that mm. how that works. Um, I could go on at length about that, but I'll just leave it for the moment. <laughs> but um, you know we could pick that apart later. Yeah, but anyway, I, um, I see us doing that. But I did that for a couple of years, and then um, I needed a change, so I, I came to uh, the sales engineering organization, and I'm an SE now in the southeast, uh, United States, and now it's it's directly customer facing. So it's you know the front lines, whereas before I was in you know kind of the the, the back of some you know headquarters type of type of role for the most part. Um, developer evangelist was a little different because, but you know who the developers are? They're not paying customers. They're, they're almost never the paying customer at the time, and, and especially. So it, I wasn't, it wasn't a customer-facing role in that, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, they weren't the ones that were sending data to Splunk. There's definitely some, some use cases, and we talk about that another time, like where, yeah, hey, it makes sense to send my Jenkins or my Puppet logs, you know, into Splunk, and there's some cool stuff you can do there. Or, or my, you know. But now it's like, hey, everything is uh, – Developers are more in, in when when we have DevOps, you're, you all these things are all tied together. So the operations of the thing used to be separate. Now it's right. separate. So the orchestration of how the code got into the container that come, might come before, and then the code's in the container running the container. Now the logs are coming out of the container. Splunk needs to have the logs come out of the container. That's a no-brainer. People have been doing that for a long time. But what about that pr process that led up to that? Isn't that relevant? So that's where I, I, I do like to get involved in those kind of conversations, which are pretty interesting. So you, you, you've been here now uh, seven. Se seven? Mm -hmm. seven years. And I think one of the biggest um, takeaways I got from what you shared is that uh, when we go all the way back to the, the start of your career and you were um, talking about being in the lab, in the security lab, um, I, I have to text my boss and tell him I'm recording a podcast. Right? Um, I, I said, uh, uh, you said iOS, I said OS2. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of a better generational divide than, <laughs> than us pointing out some people who are very familiar with iOS will have no idea what OS2 is. And those people that know what OS2 is are going to be like, yeah, but what about OS2 Warp? So, yeah, I, mean, uh, I just wanted to Windows comically pay homage to them. Uh, you know, back in the day, I had DOS, you know, uh, you know, three point three. You know, and I I had DeskView three eighty six. You know, like I'm I'm old in that in the computer time. Yeah, but um, so lived to one hundred and fifty though, so I'm not really that old in the scheme. Of how biblical? Yeah, I don't know. So. We, uh, we, we, we now know a bit about each other. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to do was, uh, I guess, get a sense from, from you. Like, where do you see us going with, with Splunk Talk? So how long have we got? I mean, because we've been going for, what, 30 minutes or something? Yeah, we should wrap up. Yeah, so maybe we save that for episode two. Ooh. What do you think? Episode two. So there will be an episode two, and episode two can be, here's what we think we're going to do, and then we'll be asking for feedback because we don't it exist in a vacuum, and maybe people have ideas of what they would like to hear. So and with that in mind. Have a closing that we would mention things like um, there is a Splunk Talk podcast. Uh, we're in uh, – we, we have a Twitter handle. It's called Splunk Talk. We have um, – what else do we have? There actually is a Facebook page too. I don't know what else we have, um, but we have a tag on answers. But we have to figure out how we want to use that. Yes, yes. Um, there's also Reddit. I'm on Reddit. Uh, oh, R Splunk. Slack. Slack. Oh yes. So, <laughs> how do you tell people about these these Splunk Dash user groups Slack team? Like, how do you get them started? Because there's that page on Docs. Are you familiar with that page on Docs? Yeah, I think I, I referenced that, but for the sake of this podcast, but, but honestly, let's, you know, verbally, how do we share that that with people? Yeah, I would say check the show notes. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Good deal. If you do just happen to not check the show notes and you're just listening, though, and you think about it, if you just Google Splunk Slack, then I, right, for me, it's the second link right now. Chat Groups is the name of the page on the Splunk documentation website. And there are links to there on how to get started and what that's all about and, you know, how to get an account. And, all and we have a, a room uh, in there we yes, called a channel right. in Slack terminology. Hashtag Splunk Talk. So you can engage with us there. Touch with us uh, one-on-one. And we will be in the future live streaming in that and, and in being, participating in that chat room interactively with people. We're just not there yet on the infrastructure side, so give us a little bit. As noted by the fact that I've got the Bluetooth headpiece. <laughs> no, I mean, it works. It works. And um, so the uh, you cleaned up. I, I see your office is looking nice and snappy. Yeah. Yes, I I um I did deliberately leave all my Nerf guns out just as a, a teaser. We're uh, spend like several minutes just kind of like you know, oh let's shift it this way you know by by three degrees. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, um, but I I think I do a thing. I just turned on. I, volume. <laughs> um, I I think uh, you've got a good point. We can you know we we've got ways that we want to engage with people. This is our our first time, but looking forward to the future episodes and uh, we've got some cool segment ideas, uh, guests that we want to bring in. Um, so uh, this should be really exciting and really fun. Awesome. Well, it's been um, a pleasure speaking with you today um, and I hope you have an excellent weekend, Birch. That was, um, as, uh, that was like a- as they say in the Truman Show, if I, if I don't see you later, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. You know what? Before we close, um, I have yeah. a Truman Show story. One of my good friends, um, many years ago, his um, when his brother 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 in law lived in New York. Uh, he was a playwright. He, he probably still is in New York and, and a playwright. Uh, but I, I, you know, I'm speaking about the past here. So um, this playwright, he was shopping a, a play around, and it was called Frank's Life. I think was the name of it. And um, he shopped it around. And I don't know what he may have done wrong as far as best practices in the industry. Maybe didn't get a document signed that he should have gotten. It was the Truman Show. Ugh. He sued them, and he was able to document, I forget the number. It's been a long time, 302 similarities or whatever, a ridiculously long example of, hey, all they did was change the names here and there and there and whatever and, and prove that it was his story. Now, term you know this was not a public settlement there's no you know it's it was a civil suit you know whatever there's no public record or whatever but i heard he did pretty well so that's my truman show story wow always always get those ndas signed kids yeah always get those so that's the moral of today's episode get those (laughs) ndas signed Um, we'll have to come up with a, a fun, consistent closing, but uh, I'll do a spin move just like we opened it. This has been Spun Talk. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll work yeah. on that. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.